Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with David Marinus, the author of Barack Obama The Story. He's written 12 books, is a recipient of several Pulitzer Prizes, and is a visiting professor at Vanderbilt University. It's our honor to welcome one of America's best known writers and one of their best writers, one of America's best, David Marinus. David, thanks for being here. Great to be with you, Evan. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. There are three reasons that we are thrilled to have David Marinus on our, uh, on our show. First of all, I have ranked 375 books on Goodreads, and the story is one of about only 20 of those 375 that I've given five stars to. The second is that there's a new book out by Barack Obama, his autobiography. I mean, we want to have David give us insight into, into Barack Obama's early years so we have a better context as we all pick up the president's new book. And third, we want to talk about his new book that's now in paperback, A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father. But first, Barack Obama, The Story. It's a stunning book because it shatters the myths about Barack Obama's early years, many of them created by opponents in attempts to hurt him politically. And you, David, begin the book with description of, descriptions of five places that define his early years, Hawaii, Topeka, Kenya, Jakarta, Chicago. Let's go in order, at least for the first four of them. We'll leave the fifth, Chicago, for a little bit later. But first, it's an amazing story. I've never forgotten it since the first moment I read it. What did you find in the cement in Hawaii? This was at the Punahou School, the private uh, school that, prep school that Barack Obama went to. Um, and in the cement there, they were, I guess, redoing a patio, uh, a lanai, and in the cement was the name Obama. And one of his former classmates, I was interviewing a, a, a guy who was on the basketball team with Barack on the Punahou team. And we were sitting on a, uh, a fence, uh, and he said, come on over here, I gotta show you something. And there in the, etched into the cement was the name Obama. And um, you know, it's, a, it's in a sense a trivial thing and yet sometimes the most seemingly unimportant trivial things take on a certain resonance. Um, and that for me was one of those moments to think about, uh, it was one of many moments where I was thinking about what could have been and what happened with this young man. What was it doing there? So, so you're basically someone when he was in high school thought the name Obama stuck out in such a way that they said, ah, what the heck, we'll draw it in the wet cement, right? <laughs> it was, you know, at first I thought, well, maybe Barack did it himself as a way to, you know, like Kilroy <laughs> right. is here, right? right, right. Um, but no, it was one of his buddies who did it. And I don't have, I can't explain why, just that they wanted to mess up the cement and and he decided to blame Obama for it, so put his name in it, maybe wanting to get him in trouble. Who knows, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, but his name, but it's it, you know, the name then sticks out, and then you know, however however many years later, it, he's president, and that becomes like 
maybe the one thing that he left behind at the high school there because uh, yes. he was not a great basketball player. But one of the things that was left behind there that shows that forever a future president went to that school. You know, it's not that he was a bad basketball player. He was actually pretty good. It's just that Puno had a terrific team. Uh-huh. And he was always complaining that he should have been a starter. But when you analyzed who was on that starting team, there was no way that Brock was going to crack the lineup. The other thing, Evan, is Obama is an odd name, perhaps, in parts of the continental United States. In Hawaii, it wasn't that strange at all because it's also a Japanese name. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people just assumed that this Obama on the, on the basketball team in Hawaii was a Japanese-American. The second thing that, and of course, his background is fascinating and goes very deep, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But the next thing you describe, the second place that you visited is Topeka, Kansas, the 1100 block of 6th Avenue. And you go there and you're looking for this garage and you say something um, happened inside of the garage decades before you'd been there. That changed the course of American history. So what happened in that garage and to who? What happened in that garage was a suicide. And it was Barack Obama's great-grandmother killing herself. And as a result of that um, death, the family moved from Topeka back to, to El Dorado, Kansas. And that's where Barack Obama's grandfather ended up living and meeting the, Barack Obama's grandmother. But it was the, the suicide of his great-grandmother, um, Ruth uh, Armour, in Topeka, um, because it was on Thanksgiving Day, and it was because her husband was unfaithful to her, and she was despondent, and it took place in the auto garage where he worked. Um, and it was still, you know, the garage was still there. It was, of course, quite changed from back in the, the, the days when this happened. Um, but the garage was still there. And to go there and feel about, you know, the, these little ripples of, of history that, that have such large ramifications. And of course, all of our lives are built on these types of coincidences. But again, it was one of those moments for me to think about how that changed the course of American history. And the reason, of course, that it changed American history is because if that suicide doesn't happen, the family then doesn't wind up on this westward journey where Stanley Ann meets Barack Obama Sr. in Hawaii. But um, I've always remembered that when I, from the first time I read your book, which is years ago now, but um, you always say life is a series of accidents and that it was never more true in the life of Barack Obama. It's true for all of us. Um, it just seemed to sort of be um, sort of much brighter and shining when you look at Obama's life on the series of accidents that occurred that created him. This book is really a book that takes, it has two central themes. One is the world that created Barack Obama. And then in his teenage years and early adulthood, how he recreated himself or created himself. So all of these factors, you know, in Hawaii, in Kansas, are about the world that created him. And, and of course, it's a series of accidents until 
one can take control to a certain extent of one's own life. You wind up then in Kenya, a seven hour drive from Nairobi. Most of us probably can't even, can't picture Nairobi, let alone the villages you're talking about. Um, you're interested in these two villas, these two villages. So explain why you were interested in them, what it was like to get on this seven hour journey from Nairobi and who you met in those villages. So Nairobi is the capital of Kenya and Barack Obama's, the Kenyan side of his family is from far Western Kenya out by Lake Victoria. Um, the tribe from which that family came is the Luo tribe. And um, so I had to go out there to understand that part of Barack Obama's family. Um, in his memoir, Dreams from My Father, um, he writes a lot about one of his um, grandmothers, Mama Sarah, Grandma Sarah. Um, and she became famous because of his memoir. Um, but in fact, she was not a blood relative. She married Barack Obama's grandfather, Anyango Hussein Obama, um, after Barack Obama's father was born. And, and so she had no real relationship to him, but she became famous because, of, because Barack Obama saw her when he went to Kenya and wrote a lot about her. By the time I got out there to um, Kogelo, um, where she lived, it had become almost a fortress. Uh, you know, there were, there were gates around it. Um, she had people protecting her. There were satellite dishes everywhere. Uh, they were selling trinkets out by the gate. Right, people are making money on this thing. Yes, right? it, yeah. it, was, it was a tourist site by then. And, um, you know, it was, they were, you know, they basically wanted money from me to be able to interview anybody. Um, and in the end, I realized that she wasn't really the story, that, that the, the real blood relatives of Barack Obama lived in this small uh, village down closer to Lake Victoria, Oyugis. Um, Barack Obama's father, so Barack Obama Sr.'s sister lived down there, his only really living blood sibling. And she lived in a mud hut in a poor village um, with nothing around her. She sold charcoal for a living. Um, but when I went into their hut, there on the wall were these color photographs of Barack and Michelle Obama. Hmm. One of the reasons or one of the things that you say in how you explain your reporting and your writing is that you always feel like you have to go, that a reporter doesn't get, and I agree with this in my own reporting, but a reporter doesn't get what they really came for unless they go to get it. Explain how that theory proved true as you investigated Barack Obama's background. Well, in every place that I went, um, you know, I believe deeply in trying to understand the cultural geography of a place as a way to try to understand someone. So for instance, in Hawaii, um, my wife and I went there for several weeks, which by the way, 
um, she was happy to do because for an earlier <laughs> there are worse book, places I, to go. Yeah. Yeah. In an earlier book, I had to persuade her to move to Green Bay, Wisconsin to write my biography of Vince Lombardi. <laughs> so this was makeup call, right? Uh, um, but in any case, the more time I spent in sort of understanding the culture of Hawaii, I came to appreciate why Barack Obama has a certain coolness and reserve to him. That's a very native Hawaiian thing. One of the phrases that many of his Hawaiian friends told me was, cool head main thing. Um, you know, and, and it's that sort of nature of, of the place. Also in Hawaii, you could understand um, the universality of Barack Obama or why he tried to become a universal person. It's not just that he's part um, Kenyan and part uh, white American, um, but it's that Hawaii sort of, he grew up in a milieu where it was a polyglot. There were so many different types of people in Hawaii um, and so many languages being spoken. And there was Portuguese and Japanese. And you know, one of his friends on the basketball team was named Tom Topolinski. It sounds Polish. It turns out he was Chinese, you know? I mean, so um, there was all of that sort of understanding of the the rich diversity of the world that came to Obama from Hawaii. I would say that the most, um, the place where it washed over me the most, sort of going there to appreciate it, was um, Indonesia. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that next. But okay. yeah, but but the, the question I was going to ask about oh. Indonesia is, is um, this is the place where he lived, I think, from the ages of between six and eight. And yeah. you find this school there. And inside this school, there's, you know, you see the classroom that he sat in as a child. And at the right. front of the room is this amazing picture showing the journey, first of all, from Hawaii to Jakarta, but then yeah. from Jakarta to, to the, White House. the White House. Explain what this schoolhouse was like in Jakarta. Uh, this was St. Francis of Assisi, of a Catholic school. It's the first place that Barack, he was actually then Barry. You know, he didn't become Barack until college. He was called Barry or Bear. Um, and his mother had remarried to an Indonesian, Satoro. So at age six, he was actually called Barry Satoro. Um, he was not one of those expat kids who went to the international school where everybody spoke English and it was a sort of a bubble of, of Western life. He was thrown in to sink or swim with the other kids. Uh, he learned Bahasa Indonesia, the language. Um, some of the kids uh, made fun of him because he was a little darker skinned than they were. Um, they thought he was from an island on far Western uh, Guinea, where the where the people in that part of Indonesia were a little darker, Papua New Guinea. Um, and when I was there and just sort of at that school and on the street outside the, the house, the stucco house where he and his parents lived, listening to the sounds of the city and the street vendors and, you know, just picking up the whole sensibility of that place. And thinking about a six-year-old boy named Barry Satoro there, going from that place to the White House, it's just, you know, aside from, it has nothing to do with politics. It's just an extraordinary journey. And it really washed over me by being there, by going there and seeing it and feeling it.
Yeah, it's a stunning um, it's a stunning life journey, maybe the most extraordinary that that we can find among the 45, almost 46 American presidents. Um, the next thing I want to do is just, if you can describe the Dunhams um, and describe the Obamas and the two journeys these families are going on that put them in the right place at the right time in Hawaii for yes. Stanley Ann and Barack Sr. to meet. Uh, Barack's mother was named Stanley Ann Dunham. Um, people always assumed that she was named after her father. Why would you name a girl Stanley? Um, and that was my assumption until I, I interviewed some of the other relatives and discovered that, that the mother, Madeline, Barack's grandmother, was a huge Betty Davis fan. And there was a movie in which Betty Davis played a woman named Stanley, and that's how she got her name. Anyway, she was an only child of Stan and Madeline Dunham. Stan was a dreamer, a sort of a, a drifter, not at all a grifter. He wasn't, you know, he was an honest guy, but he, he just, he, you know, he had a hard time finding his place in the world. He was constantly looking for something better and moving west. So the family moved from, from uh, Kansas, where Stanley Ann, Barack's mother, was born to Texas and then back to uh, Oklahoma for a while and then to the Seattle area where she went to high school. Um, she was then Ann Dunham. She dropped the Stanley part. And uh, she was a very smart, progressive young woman. And um, she moved with her, but her dad kept wanting, you know, he was selling furniture in Seattle, and then he got an offer to, to sell furniture in Hawaii. So they moved to Honolulu. Um, and she was just graduated from high school, went with her parents to Honolulu and enrolled at the University of Hawaii. Meantime, in Kenya was Barack Obama Sr., who was a very intelligent young man who um, was working in Nairobi and at the time that the first airlift of bright young Kenyan students were being brought to the United States for, to go to colleges. Barack Obama Sr. was part of that movement. And he chose to go to the University of Hawaii because he'd read a story in Life magazine about how Hawaii was more open to, to blacks and to people of all different parts of the world than other parts of, of the United States. So he went to Hawaii. He ended up taking a class on Russian, which was very popular then. But didn't he only see, didn't he just see this picture uh, on Time Magazine of, of, uh, of what Hawaii looked like? Yes, it was sort of the paradise, yeah. What the heck, yeah, let's just yeah, right. go. Yeah it, was, but yeah, it was partly that it seemed like a paradise and partly that that story that would accompany the pictures talked about the, um, diverse nature of that place and how it was more open to other places. But yeah, it was just a fluke um, that that's where he decided to go and that's where they met. Um, and a very brief relationship, a brief marriage that didn't go anywhere, but it created a future president of the United States. One thing I think we have to do in order to really understand this man's background is to understand the word JDAC. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. 
Um, but Barack I Obama's pronounced it Jadak, but Jadak? Uh, I, I can't vouch for that. <laughs> okay. But I, I uh, think Jadak is more likely. This um, is a word that you put in italics in the book. Um, yes. And it's uh, J-A-D-A-K. And right. you say that Barack Obama's grandfather was described that way as Jadak or Jadak, or which we'll have to... I guess figure out which of us is right, but uh, <laughs> but 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 what does that word mean, and and how? Um, well, explain what the word means, and then how it sure. sort of tells a story about who Barack Obama would become. Well, what it means is some variation of stranger or outsider, and his grandfather, his Kenyan grandfather, and great grandfather were considered Jadaks in the part of of uh, Luo land, not by the um, Lake Victoria where they lived, um, because they essentially were, uh, you know, it depends, uh, it's like saying that somebody's an outsider in America if they didn't come, if they weren't Native American or came over on the Mayflower. But anyway, his, his, um, the Obama family heritage went back to the Southern Sudan. And so he was never, they were never considered uh, and also because of some of his, some political contentiousness in that part of, of um, far western Kenya, he was never considered one of the people there when he was called a Jadak. Um, and so they moved from there up to Niangala um, Kogelo, which is where um, uh, the grandmother that I described um, is now hanging out. And they were basically forced out of that, the territory of, of, of the southern part of Luo land. Um, and I just, you know, when I heard that word and how he was described that way, it struck me that it had a larger resonance um, that um, Obama was portrayed um, wrongly in the United States as a stranger or an outsider. He had to deal with that same sensibility um, you know, in his political life, um, many genera generations later. Um, but it was part of the strain of the Obama family from, from way back. If you can, describe what's happening in the lives of Stan Leanne and of Barack Sr. at the moment um, Barack is born. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, but the elephant in the room is always, well, not always, but I suppose in some circles that there is some conspiracy around the location <laughs> of Barack Obama's birth. But it's um, just bizarre. And, yeah, and, I mean, you, and you address this head on in the book, but if you yeah. want to spend time on it sure. here, we can, but I'll just, otherwise, I'll just do one just, thing about please, it. Please go ahead. Um, the notion that Barack Obama was born anywhere but Honolulu on August 4th, 1961, is preposterous. And here are the many reasons why. Um, it would have required an enormous conspiracy from that point um, uh, to protect someone that everyone knew was gonna be the President of the United States, you know, some 40 some years later. First of all, the birth announcement was in all of the Hawaiian papers. Secondly, Barack Obama Sr. was being hailed by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which wanted to kick him out of Hawaii because they, for various reasons, um, 
one of which was they didn't like the fact that he was dating white women. Um, and so they kept a file on him and were looking for reasons to, to deport him. If in fact he and Ann Dunham had gone back to Kenya, they never would have gotten back into the United States. It was just, and then there's a third reason, which goes back to that name of Stanley Ann Dunham. Um, one of the uh, teachers at the Punahou School um, was a friend with the doctor who um, delivered Barack Obama. And she had lunch with him the very week um, of the birth. And she recalled saying to the doctor, um, you know, did anything interesting happen in your life this week? And he said, well, Stanley had a baby. And the, you know, the notion of someone named Stanley having a baby was something that, of course, the doctor remembered and all the nurses at the, at the hospital remembered. So you have both, for, you know, firsthand um, observation. You have the documentation of, the, of the, all the INS records, which I got. And then you have the newspaper account of the birth record. So, you know, it, from all of that was just, to me, uh, made it obvious that this was nothing more than an attempt to to create a conspiracy based on racism. So let's talk about then um, why his father only stayed for a short period of time. And, and, and maybe I will add, he only meets his father one time in childhood after um, he leaves Hawaii the first time. And the picture of it is stunning. You have a young 10-year-old Barack Obama grabbing his father's hand over his chest um, and it really, you know, he has a smile on his face and it honestly makes me emotional to think about mm. any child who only gets to meet a parent one time. And there are many, many people in his shoes. Um, yes. So explain why Barack Obama Sr. only stays for a short period of time. You know, part of that is uh, lost to history because both... Um, both of Barack Obama's parents were long gone by the time anybody really became interested in, in sort of researching his life. Um, but they, they did get married and they probably lived together for less than a year. The reasons why it broke up are not clear. Um, clearly, Barack Obama Sr. had a drinking problem and probably had um, uh, other attractions as well. But in any case, Anne realized that this was a, you know, not gonna work as a marriage. And she moved back to Seattle. Um, and then he, um, you know, was a very, you know, brilliant student. And he went to Harvard uh, Graduate School uh, studying, uh, you know, for an economics uh, graduate degree. Um, so they were, and then he went back to Kenya. and. Barry, the little boy, really never knew him until he was 10 years old, as you say, and Barack Sr. was touring the United States and, and um, perhaps wanting to rekindle his relationship with Anne. It's not totally clear. But he came back to Hawaii and stayed there for a couple of weeks. And that's the only time, the only time that, that Barack Obama, future president, um, saw his father. And it was a fairly awkward couple of weeks, um, to say the least. 
Can you talk about then how Jakarta enters the picture here and what it says about both Stanley Ann's personality and sense of adventure and what it may say about Barack Obama also? Well, Stanley Ann um, was an anthropologist. She was studying anthropology and she, she, she married a Indonesian, uh, Lolo Satoro, who was uh, studying at the East-West Center in Honolulu. Um, and she went to Indonesia with him. Um, she, was a, she was open to the world. She was curious. She was especially attracted to the different cultures of the world. Um, and she found herself in Indonesia. The, that marriage collapsed as well eventually, but it led Anne on the path of her life, which was as an anthropologist and as a um, sort of a, you know, getting involved with NGOs, trying to help um, women, especially empower themselves around the world, both in Indonesia and later in Pakistan and India and other places. Um, she was just very, a very committed humanist, you might say. And Barack, um, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Go oh, ahead. you go. I, I was going to ask. So, so Lolo um, never comes back to the United States and um, uh, the marriage, as you say, falls apart. And um, yet Barack Obama is still very much close with, the members of the Sotero family. There are pictures of them together and Maya is, uh, you know, his, his, I guess, half sister, it would be, um, or stepsister or half sister, either way, half sister, half sister they're, yes. they're close. Mother so, so Barack and Maya are very close. Um, she's born, she's, you know, several years younger than Barack. Um, but um, the only sibling, you know, he had, he had half siblings on the Kenyan side too, but he never knew them. But Maya and he um, grew up together um, to a degree, some degree, um, both in Hawaii and in Indonesia. And so he was, yes, very close to, to Maya in particular, not, not to many of the, not to Lolo after the, the marriage collapsed, um, but he went back to, <clears throat> to uh, Honolulu um, to go start um, sixth grade in, in, in Hawaii at the Punahou School. Um, Stan helped get him into that private school. And um, he lived with his grandparents for all of his uh, adolescence from then on. Yeah, and I was gonna, I was gonna ask you, um, um, one of the things you say in the book is that he did not live the classic African-American life, not by a long shot. Um, he grew up in Hawaii. It was a, a, a certainly a, the, the, the ancestry in Hawaii is much different than you would find in almost anywhere in the mainland United States. Um, he has mixed race parents um, and he is raised by white grandparents. So just explain, you know, how that upbringing impacted his view of being um, what some would describe as African-American, but just in, in blackness in, in, that, in another sense. You know, his mother, Anne, was very committed to, to trying to help him um, appreciate and understand his heritage. So even when they were living in Indonesia, 
um, she would teach him as much as she could about African-American history. Um, she understood what he was going to face. Um, in Hawaii, um, the only real um, blacks there were um, affiliated with the military. So there were a few, in, uh, I think there were two or three African-Americans in his high school, um, but not many. Um, and so he, you know, he dealt with with kids from all over, but but not a real African-American experience, with a couple of exceptions. And that's what attracted him to basketball because it was you know, considered the, the black sport. And it was part of his search for self-identity. Um, he, he fell in love with the University of Hawaii basketball team at a time when it had mostly black players. And that was one way he could sort of self-identify. Um, you know, but it was a constant um, search for Barack. And he was, um, you know, on the one hand, white people, he, you know, here was the dilemma he faced. White people would say, well, you're half white. Why do you call yourself black? And black people might say, well, you know, you're not really African-American. So he was, you know, he's, because, you know, his father was not, he didn't grow up in that culture. He was searching for it his whole life. He finally found it, of course. What were his grandparents like? Um, what was it like to be raised by them? Well, they both had drinking problems. His grandmother, Madeline, was the responsible one in the family. She, she uh, was a, a very, not a particularly warm person, but a very responsible person. So Brock would say he never really got hugs from her, but he, but he got comfort from the fact that she took responsibility for the family and for raising him and for bringing in money. Um, Stanley, the, the grandfather, was warmer um, and more jovial, and all of the kids really liked Stan. But, you know, he was he was um, not a particularly responsible person. And, you know, he was trying to sell insurance by that, by the time Barry was in high school and not doing well at it. And Barack in his, in his um, memoir, Dreams from My Father, describes watching um, his grandfather try to make cold calls at night and just sort of dreading it and sort of the, you know, the, the horror of that scene. Um, embarrassment of it. Um, so, you know, they did the best they could. Um, his grandmother, there's a scene in, in, in Barack's uh, memoir where he describes his grandmother expressing fear about a black man who was standing near the bus stop. That became sort of a totem during the 20, 2008 campaign. Um, you know, in the biography, I, in researching it, I discovered it didn't happen quite when Barack said it did. Um, he moved it out of place. Um, and he used it as he did so many events in that memoir to try to describe his own sensibility about dealing with race. Um, and so that, you know, he wanted to say that even his grandmother, this well-intentioned woman, could say things that unwittingly um, disturbed him and she didn't quite appreciate what was going on in his mind as a young black man. You describe him in school in Jakarta as being quiet, 
until the end, willing to speak up after others had spoken, observational, very uh, the opposite of your other <laughs> of your other subject, <laughs> Bill Clinton. Oh yes. Um, uh, the opposite of Bill Clinton, who would stand there at the front of the classroom begging to be called on. Yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, you you also read some of his own writing where he describes really a very simple childhood. I would go down the street to pick up new comic books from an old blind man who sold them. Uh, I would sit and have TV dinners. I played basketball in school, but I was no big deal. Um how do we start to tie all of this together and look at the way he became when we all got to know him as a senator and president? Boy, you know, it, it's so, you, I'm glad you brought up Clinton because it is so different. You know, Billy Clinton from a pretty early age knew that what he wanted to be in life and that was right. the United States. Right. There are no clues to that. I mean, there, there's one sort of uh, outlier clue of Barack Obama in second grade in Indonesia writing about the possibility of becoming president, but it completely went against everything else that you can study about his childhood and adolescence. He was not, he didn't express any ambitions, political or otherwise, really. He was just kind of, you know, he, he and his buddies liked to play basketball and smoke dope basically in high school. And that was pretty much it, have a good time. Um, but there was something going on inside him, clearly, um, that started to bloom when he got to the mainland, to Occidental uh, College for the first two years of his, of his college life. And he, you know, he, he clearly had a sensibility probably instilled mostly by his mother, even though she wasn't always around, that he was special. Um, that he could do anything he wanted. And, you know, some people are early bloomers and some are late, and Brock was a little bit later, but it started once he got to college. And some of us are still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Um, when does he wind up going to Kenya? Uh, describe this remarkable scene when he gets there and he finds this village and this cemetery and his father has passed away. He's already in, I believe he was in his 20s by that point, and he gets the news on a phone call that his father has died in a drunk driving crash. Yes. Um, and he goes to Kenya and he actually finds these graves that have his name on them, of course, you know, senior and then the grandfather. Um, but just describe this as seen and, and what this means to him. Well, his, his, you know, it was his homecoming. It was the life that it was the, you know, it was the, the hole in his life. Um, you know, he uses that as the central motif for his memoir, Dreams from My Father, starting with when he gets the call from a relative saying his father is dead. Um, and now it happened right at a point when he, when he was starting to think more about his father and the Kenyan side of his family. As many young people do when they're in their early adulthood, they start to think about um, who they are, their self-identity in a stronger way. Um, so going to Kenya for him was both exhilarating and exhausting. Exhilarating because he saw the, the richness of this family life that, he, that was part of him and explained part of him, but that he didn't know before. 
and exhausting because there were so many contentious different parts of the family, um, you know, of this large Kenyan family that, you know, didn't like each other or were fighting over different things that by the time he left, he was, he was exhausted. But there are certain moments, you know, that, I mean, it, when I described how it affected me as the biographer to see certain places, like the house he lived in, in Indonesia, the, you know, the Obama etched into the cement in Hawaii, um, and the huts in Kenya where, and the grave sites, which I went to as well. I'm just a biographer. Think about how it would wash over the, the son, you know, of him, um, who, who, you know, it was in his blood. And so I think that um, because of that, um, it's, it was part of the awakening of Barack Obama as a black man. And he was on that venture. He was on that journey in any case. It culminated with, in Chicago with him, meeting Michelle and marrying and having a family, which he never felt he had before, and finding his place in the world. But uh, going to Kenya was the beginning, in many ways, of that part of the journey. And I do want to describe some of Chicago here, but but that moment where he kneels down between these, group, the, these two grave sites and weeps, um, that is a transformative moment for him, but also one that really displays his profound sense of loss that he really did not have a father in his life. You know, a lot of, a lot of, um, one of the themes I use in the book is about, um, people leaving. Um, you know, his father left him before he was, you know, uh, conscious. His mother essentially never fully left him, but was often leaving. Um, you know, there's all of that. So yes, that moment of loss is, is very, you know, it helps explain um, him in so many ways in dealing with that. Let's talk about the fifth thing. We talked about Hawaii. We talked about Topeka and the suicide in, in this garage that sends the Dunham family looking for more out West. Kenya, we talked about Jakarta. Um, you describe a visit to Chicago. Chicago is the fifth place that is critical to understanding his background. And you describe a pastor and the pastor starts to teach Barack Obama in the 1980s about Chicago. And we have to remember that he didn't grow up in an area that had what, you know, what a, a, someone might call a classic African-American neighborhood and, and situation there. So what does he learn in Chicago? And you mentioned him meeting Michelle Obama, but, but just take us through this journey that he goes through as he gets this real urban experience. Well, he came out of New York um, where he had a Anglo girlfriend, actually an Australian girlfriend, um, where he was working for a corporation and he didn't like that life. He was still looking for his place in the world and his self-identity. So he got a job as an organizer in Chicago, um, in the south side of Chicago. And it was, you know, he was, one of the things I talk about in the book is that within, a, within less than a year's period, three people moved to Chicago. One was Michael Jordan, 
One was Oprah Winfrey, and the third was this unknown kid, Barack Obama. Who, Three you know, big people. That's a big yes. year, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, but, uh, but anyway, he didn't know anyone there. Um, so he, you know, he wanted to in, sort of immerse himself in the place, and he realized fairly quickly that one of the keys to understanding Black Chicago was the church. And so uh, I found a Reverend Alvin Love who described about one day he was looking out the window and saw this funny looking dude walking down the street and ringing the doorbell of his rector of his church. And it was Obama and, and that started their tutorial. Um, Obama just wanted to learn as much as he could about the lives of people in the south side of Chicago, what you know, what he could do to help them as an organizer, um, and really how he could, you know, it was it was twofold. It was at once a way for young Barack Obama to learn how to become a, an effective community organizer and understand his this this community, which was attractive to him, but alien to him, um, you know, as a, someone who grew up in Hawaii and went to Occidental and Columbia, these two um, predominantly white and, and uh, uh, up, you know, Ivy League style schools, um, to go to the south side of Chicago was a culture shock. And he wanted to immerse himself in that. So that was part of it. But at the same time, he was also learning about himself. Um, you know, it was both outward and inward um, what was going on with him in Chicago during those years in the early and mid, uh, mid-1980s. So how does someone with a rocky upbringing become known worldwide as a great father and husband? You know, I, when you try to appreciate or understand why people are the way they are, um, and you study their history. Um, one of the one of the key uh, sort of paradoxes or conundrums that I try to deal with is how much of a person's character is shaped by their background and their family, and how much is in reaction to it. Um, and with Barack, it's both, but in sense of a of a search for home, it was a reaction to what he didn't have. He was desperately in search of that um, because he really grew up without it. He was he was the jadak. Um, he was he, he was an observer, feeling somewhat out of place wherever he was. Um, he was not white. He was considered by society black, but he hadn't had the experience of being black um, or living in a black culture until Chicago. And so, and he was searching for the home. And so um, I think that it was in reaction to what was lost in his early life that he became um, the someone who, des- who needed a family and the solidity of a family so much. Um, which Michelle provided for him. We have two books to talk about, two new books to talk about. Uh, the first, uh, the second one will be yours, but the first one is the the former president's new 
biography uh-huh. or a new autobiography. Yes. Um, there's a quote that I want to read to you. Um, sure. He says, uh, it was as if my very presence in the White House had triggered a deep-seated panic, a sense that the natural order had been disrupted, which yes. is exactly what Donald Trump understood when he started peddling assertions that I had not been born in the United States and was thus an illegitimate president. For millions of Americans spooked by a black man in the White House, he promised an elixir for their racial anxiety. How do you take that quote and um, what do you hear in his voice as you hear him describe the, the reaction that people had to his very existence in the nation's highest office? Well, um, I agree with him. Um, I've always thought that race is the uh, American dilemma and that uh, having a, the first, being the first black president um, would have that sort of um, reactionary response um, and that the birtherism movement um, was the first manifestation of that. Um, I think that what, what I find interesting is that as president, um, President Obama felt constrained from talking about that very thing, the reality of what he was facing, because he was playing by the old rules of, of being dignified and acting presidential and wanting to be president of everyone, not the president of Black America, not the president of Democratic America, but president. And so he was constrained to some degree with with very few exceptions, including the Trayvon Martin sh- uh, shooting where he talked about race, but very few when he was president. The beer summit. Yeah, the beer yeah, summit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A couple yeah. of places. But mostly he couldn't talk about it. And and there's some, you know, I think I haven't read the book yet. I've read all of the excerpts in the Atlantic and the New Yorker. And I have, you know, I'm getting the book, <laughs> but I haven't read mm-hmm. it as we're speaking. Um, but um, it's clear to me from everything that I've read and everything I know about Barack Obama that he has some regrets about not facing not just race, but some of the other uh, realities of his presidency more directly and trying to elude them or find his way around them. He was great, you know, his whole life, as I write in the, my book, was a, was a way of avoiding traps. And he didn't want to get trapped as president either. And that, but getting around some of those traps actually made him less um, direct and confrontational than he, I think he now wishes he had been. Some of the excerpts that are being printed, and I'm pulling one up now because it was, um, it was striking to hear him speak this way. And I don't know that we've ever heard him talk in the way that he did um, during uh, that he that he did that he does in this book, but he really um, hits uh, Sarah Palin hard. Yes. Um, he hits um, uh, Donald Trump hard. He hits them in a way that we didn't. And this is not necessarily just talk about race. I mean, he 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 really right. hits them um, in very harsh language that we're not used to hearing him speak. In. I once heard him say to Jerry Seinfeld that he curses a ton behind closed doors, but that we don't often get to hear it. But um, he said, Vladimir Putin is physically unremarkable. 
He said, Mitch McConnell is shameless. He said, Sarah Palin has no idea what the hell she's talking about. He said, Lindsey Graham double crosses everyone to save his own skin. He couldn't bring himself to talk that way as president. No, he couldn't. But he was certainly thinking all those things. <laughs> um, you know, he couldn't talk that way. I mean, he also confesses in the, in the book, I guess, that, that he'd have uh, he'd smoke on the sly, you know, it would, yes. during tense moments in the White House, long after he promised he'd, he'd quit smoking. Um, you know, every, every human being has, has a, a inner private uh, life and, and thoughts that aren't always expressed publicly. And that's especially true of a politician who's, whose whole life has been understanding what he can say and what he can't say as a black man in America how angry he can be, how confrontational he can be to succeed and become president. So he was thinking those things, but he felt constrained from saying them as president. You know, I would say, Evan, that we certainly heard some of that in the last month of the campaign as he mm -hmm. was campaigning for Biden, but, but it was, you know, more- Four years after he left office. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, anything more you want people to be aware of? from your studies of Barack Obama as they pick up an autobiography, oftentimes political biographies are panned for not being honest enough and for telling very whimsical stories about how well yes. their eight years in office went. How should we be prepared for that sort of thing from Barack Obama? Well, first of all, he actually wrote it himself. It's not- Different from him. some politicians, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say I sort of put it in the middle between uh, Dreams from My Father and his second book, The Audacity of Hope, which was pretty much political pablum, whereas uh, the, the first book was literature, I would say. Written before he was ever considering yes. running for office. And I think this one is a is a combination of those two, more literate, definitely, than, uh, than, than Audacity of Hope, uh, but also more policy-oriented um, than Dreams from My Father. Um, and I've always thought of Barack Obama as having a writer's sensibility. He's a, you know, going back to the Jadak idea, he's always, you know, most, most of us in journalism and writing have a certain outsider sensibility. We're observing mm -hmm. as well as participating in life. And I think that that is extraordinary for a politician to have that quality, but I think that's what Barack is. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he, he's going to have two volumes of this. I think he'll keep writing for the rest of his life. Um, two, two equal volumes, 1600 pages, perhaps. I, how how yeah, blessed are we? Yeah. Um, um, uh, I think the I, first I, one might exhaust a lot of people. No, I, I love how these. Well it's written. Not me. I love these long books. I'm ready. Uh, let's talk about your new paperback, A Good American Family, The Red Scare, and My Father. Describe the book. Uh, you say that you have to be obsessed with a topic and that you have to go where the events happened. You, meaning David, where did this book take you and why did you want to write about your own family? Well, you know, Evan, that actually connects to the Obama biography. Um, because when the Obama book came out, you know, there are many places in my book where I describe what really happened in his life as opposed to what he describes what happened in his memoir, Dreams from My Father. 
And I would try to explain to people, he was just passing along the legends and myths that he'd heard from his family. You know, like he'd said that his, his Indonesian step-grandfather died heroically fighting the Dutch in the, in the uh, fight for independence in Indonesia. And when I got to Indonesia, I discovered the truth, which was that his, his, his uh, step-grandfather died of a heart attack falling off an ottoman, changing the drapes in his living room. You know, <laughs> quite a difference. But then I would say, you know, so the right wing sort of latched on to some of those parts of the book and said that Barack Obama was a liar. And I would say, no, he was, how many of us pass along the mythology we hear from our family? How many of us have a biographer then going back to find out what really happened. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then I thought, well, you know, there are parts of my family that are sort of shrouded in myth and mystery. And it's time for me to go back and find out what really happened. My father, Elliot Marinus, who was a lifelong newspaper man, who by the time I was of, of consciousness, um, taught me, you know, not to fall for any rigid ideology, to search for the truth wherever it took me, all of what I consider the important lessons of my life as a writer. As a young man, he was called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, accused of being un-American, of having a communist background, fired from his job and was blacklisted for five years. That's all I knew. And he really, it was never talked about in our family. As I said, by the time I became of age, he had survived and moved on and had a very successful life. Um, but I wanted to find out what really happened and why and what it explained, not just about my father, but about myself. And so it was a voyage of a family discovery and a personal discovery um, to, to understand what happened, not just a story of my father, but of the people who accused him of being un-American, of the people who defended him, of the culture of that time. How much of it how much of what you heard was myth and how much of it was real? Um, well, it wasn't so much that it turned out to be myth. It's just that it wasn't talked about. So it was the mystery that unfolded. And, you know, you, you described what it must have been like for Barack Obama to be at the grave sites of his, of his Kenyan family. For me, that moment in this book came rather early. Um, I knew that my father had testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee when they came to Detroit in 1952. I knew that he wanted to give a statement, that the chairman of the committee would not allow him to give a statement unless he confessed to his sins and named names, which my father refused to do. And so the statement was, I thought, lost to history. But when I went to the National Archives and found all of the files of HUAC, which were opened by then, and there was a file for those hearings in Detroit, and there was a folder for Elliot Marinus, and when I opened it up, there was the statement. And it was a typewritten statement. My father was a hunt and peck typist. I'd watch him type, you know, my <laughs> whole life. I knew what a bad typist he was. And it was this moment of looking at that statement 
And, you know, in those old manual typewriters, the keys would stick. And sometimes a letter would go up a half a space. And when I looked at the statement, there it was. The S in statement went up a half a space because the keys had stuck. And he'd mistyped the last two uh, letters of his own last name and typed the S's over them. And when I saw that, for the first time in my life, much like it must have been for Barack when he looked at the grave of his father and grandfather, my own history washed over me. And I felt for the first time what it must have been like for my dad caught in the crucible of the most difficult point of his life, which I had never really allowed myself to feel before that moment. Did you cry? I did. Yes. Had you ever done that reporting a story before? Well, I've written some very difficult stories, including the main stories for the Washington Post about 9-11 and Virginia Tech massacre and and other tragedies. And they had, for those, I had to maintain my journalistic uh, sensibility. You know, you don't close your off to self off to the tragedy you're dealing with, but to keep going, you have to sort of put it aside somewhat. So yes, this was the first time I'd cried writing and researching. David Marinus, author of A Good American Family and Barack Obama, The Story. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very happy to talk with you, Evan. It was a great interview. Thank you. Certainly check out that book and also his Twitter profile at David Marinus and also his website, davidmarinus.com. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book book recommendations. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Thanks.